Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. What should I do with my life? That's the big question young people are often grappling with on college campuses across the country. But many of them are really struggling to find the answer. Why is that? Is it because we haven't taught our students on college campuses the art of asking the right question? Let's begin. Think you know the news of the day? Think again. Well, we're very pleased to have joining us on the program today, Benjamin Story. He's a senior fellow of Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at AEI. He's also a research professor at Furman University in South Carolina. And uh, a brilliant piece in the New York Times that I have been chomping at the bit to have this conversation uh, since I read it. And it's called The Art of Choosing, What to Do with Your Life. And that it really starts on the premise of what's happening on college campuses. Uh, professor Story, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on Inside Sources. It's an honor to be here. Wonderful. Well, let's uh, dive right in. Uh, I, I actually just want you to start with kind of the picture uh, you painted in your New York Times piece, uh, talking about you know what our young people are going through and, and why we seem to be caught in this trap of the forever opening doors, always the next opportunity. Everything is always about next uh, rather than really being strategic and thoughtful. Uh, paint that picture for us. Sure. So we begin with a picture of a student that my wife and I developed after uh, many years teaching on a college campus, teaching down at Furman. Uh, My wife and I wrote this piece together. She was also a professor there. And um, what we saw over the years was a pattern of our very best students, the students who would win the highest awards the, uh, when it came time for convocation, the students who did everything right, those students would arrive at their senior years when they're contemplating what they're going to do after college, and they would find themselves completely at a loss. They wouldn't know whether they should go teach English in some faraway country, whether they should go to law school, whether they should seek a PhD, whether they should go work on an organic farm, whether they should just go back home and work in a coffee shop. The it seemed that nothing in their educations was giving them any help in figuring out what constitutes a worthwhile way to spend a human life. That's what we wrote this piece about and what we uh, gave some effort in our teaching to try to address, to try to help young people use their educations to think better about the question of the aims toward which they're going to dedicate their lives. Uh, I, uh, I just love that. And I, I think it's such a uh, common thing. I, I found myself thinking through a, a lot of the young people that I've coached or mentored over the years, and so many find that same thing. They have this maximum of choice, but kind of a minimum of meaning uh, because they don't know how to think through what that meaning component is. And one of the things that I love that uh, you and Jenna have put together uh, in all of this is how do we get to that conversation? How do we make sure that we're helping people actually learn that art of choosing? The way that we have addressed this problem, and I love your phrase, by the way, that we have a a maximum of choice and a minimum of meaning. That's often what one is dealing with when one works on a a high-level college campus. The way that we've sought to address this question is by recovering an older understanding of reason. That is, recovering reason understood as something that is not just a tool 
by means of which we can you know, discern the best strategy for increasing the amount of money in our IRA, although I have nothing against <laughs> having a lot of money in one's IRA. I think it's a good thing. It's a good thing. The, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, uh, you know, we should, uh, our reason can be used instrumentally in that sense. That mm. is to help us pursue predetermined ends. But there's another kind of reason. And that reason is what you might call teleological, reason about ends, reason about purposes. Mm. And you can find um, resources that can help one get practiced in that kind of thinking in authors such as those we discuss in this piece, that is Plato and Thomas Aquinas. And they come from a world in which they were able to develop very powerful art of making arguments about how people ought to live. And so that's what we've tried to explore in this piece. Uh, and, I, and I love that. And I want to dig into what you actually did in your classroom, because I can just visualize uh, students grappling uh, with how to make those kind of decisions and to use that kind of reasoning, that reasoning about purpose, uh, I think is so important. You actually use a map uh, coming from Aquinas, uh, his map in terms of kind of those different areas that we should get people thinking about uh, as they're thinking about some of those ends, some of those uh, purposes that they're thinking about. So this was intended to, this, this notion of a map, which is a metaphor we're using for something that goes on in Thomas Aquinas, was a way for us to address, I think, the way students come in presuming they're going to determine the course of their lives. That is, they have been led to expect that they're going to have some sort of inner voice that is going to call to them and say, what you really want to be is an interior designer or a hairstylist or a CEO, or whatever it is. And a lot of students are, frankly, upset and and kind of frightened because they just don't hear any such voice. Mm. And so they don't know how, because they don't seem to have this sort of internal guidance system like a smart bomb. They don't know how to make any sense of the direction they ought to pursue in their lives. So what Thomas Aquinas does that I think can be really helpful to students in this way is he says, you know what? the different ways of life that human beings pursue are not infinite in number. Human beings tend to pursue certain aims. And Thomas Aquinas boils down the sorts of things that we go after into a list of about eight. And he he says human beings typically pursue wealth, health, pleasure, power, admiration, enduring glory, what are called goods of the soul, such as wisdom or virtue, and the vision of the divine. And When he lays these things out, you start to look around you, and and the human world becomes intelligible. Oh, that person is seeking wealth. Oh, that person is seeking admiration. How does that seem to be working out in that person's life? Is Is it leading them to what they want? Using this map allows students to begin seeing their world as intelligible and making decisions in the light of what they're able to observe in this way. Uh, I, I think that's so important, especially where we live in such a, a specialized world where a mm-hmm. lot of these kids, you know, they had to declare that they were going to be a second baseman or a pianist or, you know, whatever it is by the time they were, you know, six or seven, uh, rather than exploring a, a lot of the different things. Uh, give me some of the reaction and how you help uh, the students move through that to get to some of these higher thinkings, this different kind of reasoning, again, knowing they've been thinking very specific in terms of roles and responsibilities as opposed to this kind of meaning. What you're describing seems to me to be an accurate picture 
of what the college admissions process encourages. Mm -hmm. That is, it encourages students to declare when they're 18 years old or even younger than that, that they've always had a lifelong passion for (laughs) marine biology or or, uh, international law or something like this, when, you know, it's very rarely the case that anybody so young can have much of a developed idea about what they actually want to do with their lives. And so students have been trained to come into the classroom bluffing about Mm. their secure knowledge of exactly where they're headed in their lives. But it doesn't, frankly, take very much work to draw them out of that a bit, because underneath that, a lot of them are very scared about how they're going to, you know, uh, a friend of mine um, has, has written that the governing passion of, um, of, of the young these days is fear. He wrote an article, uh, this guy named Mark Schiffman at, at Villanova University wrote an article called Majoring in Fear. Mm. And, uh, you know, we've, uh, we've observed that as well, that many of our students are scared about how they're going to make their way in the modern world. One of the reasons they're scared is because the modern world seems to them to be a place of kind of moral chaos. And so when you give them resources to suggest that they actually have natural equipment, the equipment of the mind that can help them work through the various things they might do with, them, with themselves, they experience that as empowering. They experience that as the waking up of a dormant faculty that can actually help them guide their own lives. And so while there are moments in class where students get flummoxed because they're used to repeating these sort of mantras about the inner voice and so on and so forth, and we don't affirm that stuff, and and they don't know what to do at first, they very quickly move beyond that and really come to enjoy conversing with their peers and conversing with us about what it means to live well. With Lloyd Matheson on KSL News Radio, Inside Sources. Inside Sources with Lloyd Matheson. We're going to stay with the question just a little bit longer. My conversation with Professor Benjamin's story about his piece in the New York Times, The Art of Choosing What to Do with Your Life, uh, focusing particularly on what's happening on our college camp, uh, campuses. We concluded our, our last uh, piece of the conversation talking about how we often train students, our college students in particular, to be good bluffers uh, so that they can make just the right phrasing when they do that application to get into a college or into a specific program or into a certain internship. Uh, The reality is, is they're they're really good bluffers, but they're also running very scared. Uh, They're very uncertain about how to make their way in the world. And I'm absolutely convinced that being a scared bluffer is exhausting. And I think it's why so many of our young people have so much anxiety because they're scared and they're bluffing. And that leads to feelings of being an imposter. Imposter syndrome is a real thing. And it actually leads to a loss of confidence and self-worth. So I asked uh, Professor Story, what's the tipping point or the breakthrough point in getting to the other side of that scared and fearful bluffing for our young people? I'm glad you used the term imposter syndrome, which I recall experiencing, particularly at the beginning of graduate school, and I think many Americans experience. And in a way, it's a natural thing in this country because none of us are born to be shoemakers or carpenters or lawyers or anything else. All of us have to figure out how to make our way in life. And that means that we, we're we going to ultimately embark on a profession that we weren't born knowing. Mm. So how do you get to be? somebody who's not a bluffer, who's not an imposter, 
when it comes, for example, to the practice of law. Well, you go to law school and then you practice law. <laughs> and you thereby come to know what you're doing. And so, you know, a lot of poets feel like they're bluffing at being poets. You know, if you say I'm a poet, people look at you with, with, with a hairy eyeball. How do you get to be a poet? You write poems. And this is what we find in our students is it's not a tipping point. It's not that they suddenly have a I mean, there are these wonderful moments in class where 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 the scales will fall from somebody's eyes and yeah. they'll they'll see things anew as if for the first time. But where I think they really begin to develop confidence is through the slow, methodical habituation into the art of thinking, mm -hmm. which is what universities really ought to be about teaching. As they learn to do that, as they get better at using their minds and particularly at using their minds to think about the aims of human life, they start to feel like, oh, wait a minute, I'm not just at sea here. I can try to figure my way through these things. I can listen to the arguments of other people and respond intelligently. And that confidence is something that, that grows through a long uh, training, reading good stuff, writing lots of papers, learning to use the mind well, in part by imitation of other people who've used their minds well in the past, like Plato and Thomas Aquinas. Yeah, so powerful. Uh, and I, I love that development of that kind of confidence. Confidence is never arrogance, but it comes when you have that ability to to understand the art of thinking, the discipline of thinking. And I wanted to ask you, Professor, um, on a slight tangent, just as it relates to this whole idea of the art of thinking with the, the pace of the world today, you know, we, we know that the shelf life mm -hmm. of a formal degree is, is pretty limited uh, in today's world and that really what we ought to be helping people understand and help students understand is one to, to love thinking, to love learning. Uh, and then of course the discipline of it, uh, that those are the two most important things because with the rate of pace and change, the, the test of life will really be, or success in, in their lives will be on what they continue to learn after they're gone from a college campus and, and what they learned in a profession, in a personal life, in a community. How do we, how do we foster that, more and how do we start that more than just at the rare class like what you and your wife teach uh, at Furman? How do we get that more into our thinking as parents, as communities, uh, as a culture? Well, a couple of points on on what you said there, Boyd, which I think is exactly right. First of all, there's a lot of urgency on campus about making sure that people are ready to go from college directly into careers. But if you actually talk to people who run businesses, they don't want students coming with technical training that they've picked up in college as to how to be a computer programmer or whatever it is. Most of them will tell you, look, we're going to teach you what we need you to do to do this job well. We're not, we don't expect you to pick that up in your previous training. Yeah. What they want is somebody who knows how to think. Mm -hmm. And as you're saying, that is the kind of training that is suitable for people who are going to live lives in which they switch careers, in which they have they, they go through the different phases of life from being a young person in your twenties, you know, living alone and, and thinking about getting married and, and all and starting a career to to middle age such as I'm in, to you know, to retirement, you know, they have to have an education that is going to prepare them for all these things. So part of that is the arts of thinking that you and I have been talking about. Part of it is some enduring content, some content that has shown that it can stand the test of time. So if you if you read, for example, a great book like Blaise Pascal's Pensée, this wonderful philosophic and religious meditation on the meaning of human life, 
that book has been around for 400 years. If you come to agreement with Pascal on one point or another, you're, you're not just agreeing to some convention that is shared by other people in your society. You're making a connection with somebody across time. You found something that endures and that's likely to help you in the, um, in the challenges of your own life. Now, so I think that kind of content, content that can stand the test of time, that's yeah. really important. The second thing that you're asking is how we can pursue this better, how we can, we can encourage this more as a society. And I want to try to answer that on two different levels. One has to do with colleges and universities. College and university campuses these days are divided, largely between what you might call a social justice faction on the one hand and a careerism faction on the other hand. And those two parties kind of struggle it out for control of campus. There is a third party on almost every college campus, and that's the liberal education party, the party that actually wants to cultivate these arts of thinking that loves the work of the classroom or the chemistry lab or the writing seminar. And that party on campus is often weak and disorganized. Mm. So one thing that can be done on college campuses is for administrations and faculty to institutionalize their dedication to the liberal arts. That is, a lot of these institutions just assume that they can take that for granted and pursue whatever the shiny bauble is that happens to be um, uh, fascinating people in the headlines of the moment. That's not true. If they're going to seriously emphasize the liberal arts, that is a countercultural pursuit, a healthy countercultural pursuit, but they have to do it self-consciously. They, have to, they should be, for example, asking job applicants, how, are you, how do you understand the liberal arts? How are you going to practice that in your teaching, in your research? They should be screening people to create a community that, is, uh, that truly has a deep understanding of uh, what their core mission is about and can help them pursue it. Now, the second point, so universities can do a, a much better job of self-consciously prioritizing these things. The second point is that liberal education has never been limited to college and university classrooms. Socrates never went to college. The, uh, neither did um, somebody like Abraham Lincoln, who got his liberal education sitting under a tree with Euclid and the, and the Bible and Shakespeare and Blackstone. So we need to think of liberal education as something that we're concerned with way beyond the boundaries of college campuses. And here, one of the most hopeful things that's going on in the educational world of our society right now seems to me to be the development of classical schools. Uh, my wife and I have our three children in classical schools. It is just a wonder to see what they're able to do when they recover what Dorothy Sayers called the lost tools of learning. The, uh, there's, there's a lot of treasure back there in the intellectual history of the West and not just the West. And we can learn to use those treasures again the, um, if we want to. And a lot of those schools are doing exactly that. Oh, fantastic. I'd keep you here all day, Professor. Uh, but this is, uh, this is a, a crucial conversation. We'll put the, the link to the uh, article that you and your uh, wife uh, wrote for the New York Times. Uh, and this is just great thinking. This is the, not just the art of choosing. This is the art of thinking. This is the art of being. Uh, at such a high level uh, and so important. We're going to come back to this. We hope to have uh, you and maybe we'll have your tag team partner uh, join us next time for this conversation uh, because I think it's one that is sorely lacking and you've identified some crucial things that we need to make sure our young people are thinking about and make sure the rest of us are actually living and makes all the difference in the world. Professor Benjamin Story, Senior Fellow in Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at AEI, uh, also a research professor along with his wife, Jenna, at uh, Furman University. Uh, thank you so much for your time today, Professor. 
thanks, Boyd, for having me on. And Jen and I'd love to come back sometime. That is the art of choosing, the art of thinking, the lost tools of learning. We're going to continue the conversation. Stick around. We'll be right back after bottom of the hour news.